0: So this is the last of our sermon series on questions from the congregation, and our short little opening question is really sort of not a very short question. I could talk about it for a long time, but it was one that I got: how to talk about Christianity with intelligent non-believers. There are all kinds of things I could say here, but I want to give sort of the the best one I've found: don't argue. Very few people ever change their mind because they've lost an argument. Mostly when we lose an argument, we walk away and we think that like, I just really don't want to admit that I've lost, might be wrong. Or, I mean, I've known very intelligent non-believers who have argued with me about faith issues, and sometimes when they have gotten the better of me, I walk away thinking, but they wouldn't have beaten the bishop. And sometimes, I'll be honest, I've gotten the best of them in arguments, and none of them have joined the church afterwards. Arguing is oftentimes a very poor way to change someone's mind, and when we engage in it, we end up with more hurt feelings than we do useful stuff. I mean, as the song says, they will know we are Christians by our love, not by our debating skills. And so that's sort of my, there's a lot there, but the biggest is being drawn into an argument really is not going to end with someone saying, well, you have argued me, I will now become a Christian because you have won this argument any more than people change their political views because someone won an argument with them. I mean, that's just sort of how it is. That's how we're wired. Our main sermon today is about the Trinity. Some of you are thinking, man, I had the perfect Out, it was snowing, and instead I came, and it's going to be about the Trinity. Is it too late to be like, I think I hear more snow, I'm going to go to the grocery store? Yes, it is. Our scripture reading for this one is a very short one. It is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 13 or in some Bibles, verses 14. Charles and I went back and forth about what verse this was a little bit. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The word of God for the people of God. God. So if there is any sort of Christian theology or doctrine that we treat as like, well, it's sort of ivory tower theology, it has no real bearing on our lives. We sort of agree to it the same way that we agree to the iTunes end license user agreement. We're not going to read it. We don't really want to understand it. We just want to get on with it, and so we click yes. We say the creeds. We say we believe in the Trinity. But we don't really understand it, and we don't see a practical point to it. Am I right? I'm just going to go ahead and ask for probably my own personal depression later. Have any of you ever heard a sermon on the Trinity? All right, I'm seeing four hands Are there any in the choir. All right, you know what? It was a good pastor day. You all have had some good pastors. I'm a little worried Jim's was to himself in the mirror, but we'll discuss that later. So the Trinity, one of the things you hear about it all of the time from people is that the Trinity isn't in the Bible. I'm going to be honest, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. They never say that, you know, guys, God is... Three and one, one and three, it's the Trinity. They don't use that word. I mean, they use very few English words in the Bible, so using Trinity would be surprising. But we begin to see how the Trinity developed in verses like this. The first Christians were all Jews. They believed that there was one supreme God in opposition to all of the polytheists around them. But then these devout Jews encountered Jesus. And they first thought of him as like a great teacher, a rabbi, a prophet. But they started to realize he was more than that. They started to realize he was the Messiah. They came to accept him for who he was. And after the resurrection, they came to accept his divinity. And they needed a new way to talk about God. Then they experienced the Holy Spirit who they felt powerfully and realized was part of God, part of the Godhead, and so they began to talk about what it would mean to be monotheists. I am starting to lose you all, aren't I? Just slipping away into academic boredom here. Long story short, long nerdy story that I would love to tell you short, they experienced God in the way that they had traditionally. They had experienced God in Jesus, who is more than a prophet and a teacher. They had experienced God in the Holy Spirit. They had experienced God in surprising and new ways. And so they began to talk about God differently than they had before they experienced Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And out of that, they began to talk about baptizing in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They began to treat them all like parts of one unified Godhead. And over hundreds of acrimonious theologian argument years, they came and articulated the doctrine of the Trinity. That we believe in one God, revealed in three persons, And in almost anything we say, other than it's a holy mystery after that, is going to be some form of ancient heresy. I'm going to go a little bit out on a limb, because it's a small crowd today, and I can only offend so many people on a snow day. If you all get home and have nothing to do, and you are thinking, man, I would really like to watch a video on YouTube, Pastor Caleb finds funny, that I probably won't find funny, search... St. Patrick's Trinitarian Heresies, it's a great Lutheran comedy video that, as I recommend it, I'm worried has a little bit of adult language in it, because I'm scared that anything I recommend is going to have adult language in it, but it's really funny, and it talks about why everything we say about the Trinity is eventually some sort of ancient heresy. So I am not going to talk exhaustively about how the Trinity works, because that's not what I promised you. I promised last week that I was going to talk about what the Trinity means to our daily faith. We live in an incredibly individualistic culture. I don't think most of us really realize how much is true until you kind of travel abroad. When I lived in Japan, which is a very community-involved culture, very different from American individualism, one of the most shocking things to me was the expectation of privacy was completely different. We had to have village medical checks as city workers there. And, you know, we think, like, my, my medical information is, is mine. It is private. I don't need to share it with anyone. If I do share it with anyone, it should be family members. It should be these circumstances. Privacy is part of our individuality. When I went to get my medical health check, I walked into a giant gymnasium full of every other city worker in town. They announced my height and weight to the entire room. I had a chest x ray with my boss. It was very strange. Your community is expected to know all kinds of things about you. People would ask me how much money I had in my bank account. And I was like, ah, do, 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 do. if I didn't keep the front door of my house locked, my neighbors would just wander in to start talking to me because we were all part of the same village despite the fact that my shower was a direct line of view from the front door. They would just wander in. It took me so long to get used to the idea that what was important was not my individual happiness or my individual sense of privacy and well-being. What was important was the group and group harmony. We live in a very individualistic society. And most of the time, that's okay. But what do we think the ideal of the Christian life is? Now, I'm going to put on my curmudgeon pastor hat for a minute. I realize I'll get more curmudgeony as I age, but, you know, early curmudgeon signs. Some modern Christian music reflects our very individualistic nature. One of my favorite modern praise and worship songs is I can only imagine. But if you really listen to it, it's about when I get to heaven. Like heaven's just going to be a party between like me and Jesus. And I can only imagine how great it's going to be when it's just me and Jesus. As opposed to the old hymns, which are when we all get to heaven. So it's not just going to be me and Jesus. It's going to be me and Jesus and the choir and poncho, and I'm going to embarrass Judy again since she's not here to glare at me. It's going to be me and Jesus and Christians I have never met, I have never heard of, whose languages are foreign to me. It is going to be me and hopefully billions of people if I arrive in heaven and it is just me and Jesus like, whew, especially as a pastor, right? I'm going to have some explaining to do. None of my church members arrived like, ooh the ideal of Christian life is not necessarily just the individual. It's not about always just me getting saved and how I feel. The ideal of the Christian life is community. And we see that revealed in the Trinity. The Trinity becomes this idea of God, not just in one supreme individual, but God in three persons so intertwined that they are as one. And so we see God revealed as God. I'm going to reveal the liberalness of my northern seminary education here. God, the Sending Parent, whom we call Father, Jesus, the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Three distinct people, because I'm going to say, individualism isn't bad. One of the most healthy things we can be is aware of who I am, distinct from other people. Have you ever met someone who doesn't have that little bit of a wall between them and other people, and they pick up everyone else's stress? and everyone else's worry and they they can't differentiate who they are as an individual from others we need a healthy sense of saying like i'm Caleb i'm not the choir i'm not to pick on poncho again poncho i am not these other people i am me I am the Caleb who lost my train of thought for a second. I'm going to back slowly over to my notes while you all stare at me. Okay. We're back. Sometimes, in a desire for communities to work, we see people desire what I'm going to go ahead and call cheap unity. Cheap unity is when we say unity and community come from all being roughly the same. If we're going to be in community, everyone needs to think like I do. Everyone needs to act like I do. Everyone needs to react like I do. And we have all watched unhealthy places try to insist that no matter how round the peg, this community goes in a square hole. And we're going to make you do that whether you are going to fit in there or not. And sometimes we do. We mistake community for all being exactly alike. The Trinity refutes that. Jesus is not the Father. Jesus is not the Holy Spirit. God the Father is not Jesus. God the Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not God. The Holy Spirit is not Jesus. There are all kinds of diagrams about this if you all want to, more stuff to Google later. They are distinct. They don't try to become exactly like each other to have unity, so where does their unity come from? Where does community come from? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in love. When we love someone as a friend as a spouse, as a family member, sometimes the things that they do that are different than us, that we don't understand, that drive us a little bit crazy, that we would not do for anyone else, but because we love that person, we will accept. Samantha gave me permission to tell this bit, even though she's not here to see it. Samantha loves scary movies. She loves them. I, on the other hand, find real life scary enough without having to watch scary movies. I will never, ever watch a scary movie with any of you. But a couple times a year, I go and I watch a scary movie with Samantha as a married couple. And I'm going to say this, I spend the most of the movie like this but I do it because I love her, and sometimes being united in what you're doing is more important than whether everyone necessarily enjoys it. It's not the perfect example here, but we all see it. In our families, when we love each other, in our friend groups, when we love each other, we do things together whether every single person in it enjoys it as much as everyone else. One of the most frustrating experiences in all of our lives is when we're trying to find, like, the perfect compromise restaurant, right? We can't just say, like, oh, well, I'm okay. I don't really love that food, but I'll eat it anyway. But when we're all like, no, no, we've got to find the perfect place. Unity is not always agreement. Sometimes unity is letting love overwhelm those little differences. The other source of community is purpose. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are united in their purpose. Communities, at their best, made up of all kinds of different members, are united in their purpose. You all know by now I am not much of a sports fan. And I'm still not entirely sure how you play North American football, and I'm a little curious about whether the rules are being made up as they go, but that's a whole other paranoid topic for another time but when you're watching a team sport, does every person on the team play the same position? How terrible would a baseball team made only of pitchers be? Or a football team made only of, my one football position here, quarterbacks be? Or a cricket team made only of the guy who bowls? The bowler? I don't know cricket. Or a soccer team of only goalies, though they could all use their hands, so maybe that would be an advantage. When we watch a team sport, every person on the team plays a different position, but they are united in the purpose of winning, of doing the best they can, and when they really do it well, we say that they are playing as one. Churches like that. We all play different positions in the church. We all do different things. If we had a church made up of only pastors, well, if they were pastors like me, our music program would suffer, as Deb could tell you. And we would all sit out there judging each other's sermons and being like, if I took that to the nth theological degree, what would happen? Heresy. It's always heresy. Community is made up of different people with different gifts and different strength. It is made up of individuals who come together and unite. Now, we will never be as united as the Trinity. We will never truly be one. But in the Trinity, in the idea that God is this holy mystery, this three-in-one, this one-in-three, we see something that says our ideal, the ideal we were created for is not to be lone individuals and is not to be really overly intertwined communities that say, like, I have to know exactly what all my coworkers weigh and what their blood pressure is, but we see a healthy balance. Distinct and together. Now, I promise that this would affect your daily life. And so I want to give what I think it does here. What we should be about as Christians, in a lot of ways, is building community. Not just here, and not just with each other, but we should be building community in our neighborhoods. We should be building community in our workplaces. We should be building community in our cities. We should be building community everywhere we go. Because we know that that's what people were made for. They were made for relationships. They were made to be appreciated for who they are, but be invited into the group. The Trinity is important. I have all kinds of books about it that I would love to boil down to all kinds of sermons, but eventually you would all go to other churches and the bishop would be very angry at me. I know that there are parts of Christian theology that are not exciting. I know that there are parts of Christian theology that frankly seem boring and dull and out of touch and ivory tower, but most of them are a lot like the Trinity. We may never fully understand it. Our descriptions may never encompass it. But we can usually pull something out of it that affects us. Because these doctrines and these teachings, these things that we say in our creeds and we sing in our hymns and we pray in our prayers, they were articulated by people just like us trying to understand God and to understand God's work in the world. I know that there are theologians out there asking how many angels could have a dance party on the head of a pin. I know that there are people who are like, now how did Noah... Deal with the termites on the ark. Where did he put them? What did he do with them? I know that there are theological questions that are boring, that seem unimportant, but the Trinity is not one of them. The Trinity tells us something of the nature of God, and when we think that if God is like this, and our calling is to be engaged in God's work, it makes us question, what is God's work? And so I'm going to ask all of you that as we think about God, we think about community and we go out and we try to build healthy communities everywhere we go. Amen? Next Sunday, since I'm doing this preview thing now, we are going to talk about the three wise men. For the one church calendar nerd, I know it's after the three wise men have traditionally come, but we're going to talk about them. We're going to smell what frankincense and myrrh smelled like. I'm going to give out gold, chocolate coins. We're going to try to understand the story of the Magi a little bit better. So I hope you'll all join us next week for that. Our final hymn.